Well, hello there. This is the house on Valencia Street, and I'll be your host. I use explicit language. Topics of conversation will include ghosts and the paranormal and psychic ability. Comedy. Improv. We'll also talk about the truth, and I'm an incest and rape survivor, and I get to talk about it here. Some of these topics can be triggering, and it might be something that you can take in, or you might need to take a break with that. So I'm going to ask you to use your discernment. You will need to decide if this is something you're up for. Uh, if mental health stuff is kicking up for you, you can go ahead and talk to a licensed board-certified therapist, somebody who's educated enough to give you a context and give you some feedback. And that is not me. I'm just one case study, one person's perspective on how I survived and continue to weekly monitor and work to survive, living through what we lived through, and also now adapting and having new skills. Yeah. Yeah, if, it's, if you don't have money to call a therapist, there's a couple 1-800 numbers in the notes you can call because sometimes in the middle of the night you just need somebody to talk to. And sometimes if it's anonymous, it helps. Sometimes it's uh, just you need someone who can give you context, you know, and give you some feedback. Yeah, or just listen. Yeah. So those are options you might find in my notes. Yeah, pretty much I built this place. Uh, it's a house uh, that existed. Uh, several of us saw ghosts in the house. Three of four sisters saw ghosts in the house. I'm in my 50s. My sisters are in their 60s, and we're still talking about this house. And we ain't talking to each other. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so I'm documenting and getting it down so we can continue on and, and people can know. you know. And also, I'm proud of my ancestors, and I love them. And I, I venerate my ancestors here. And uh, they help keep me going, and I feel a lot of love and um, joy talking about them. I got a website, and my family, uh, my family website, I, the podcast, it's at uh, anchor.fm forward slash MoMA, M-O-H-M-A-H. You can give it a go and take a look at all the different podcast options there. You can listen to every podcast I've done, read the notes. And donate. I'd like that too. That really helps us going. Five bucks a month is a cup of coffee. Ten bucks a month is uh, a meal. Okay? Yeah, or a microphone filter or something like that. It also helps me know that my ancestors are important and that you want to hear about them because I, I love talking about them. <laughs> me and my kooky mom with her perm and her big uh, owl glasses, you know, big eyes and her big brown eyes with her her sweet little face and her cherubic smile and her witch's cackle that she loved to spring on you. I come from a long line of psychics and a couple of us was a little bit kooky, like an Adams family member or two. Yeah. So I think we're good. Let's go ahead and get on in. Hey, we're back into the stratosphere. We are warming in. We're burning in upon entry. We have entered into the threshold that is the house on Valencia Street. Hello, come on in. I've been enjoying some green tea with some ginseng and a little bit of pepper. Ooh. And actually, I think I might need another cup. I'm still a little bit congested today. Um, let's see. There's a couple concepts to wrap our mind around. Uh, the first one is there's a fella. He worked with the Eagles and a group called Poco. And his name is Timothy B. Schmidt. Uh, he worked with the Eagles. He joined in 77 or so. He wrote the song, I Can't Tell You Why. Uh, that was one of the last big hits that uh, Eagles had before they broke up in 1980. He was interviewed by John Fugelsang, and I like a John Fugelsang show. Uh, he's a comedian. He's a good-looking comedian. He's razor sharp. That man, that man's mind. Uh, he, he has one of my favorite quotes of his is, Uncle racist and aunt dead inside. <laughs> Uncle racist and aunt dead inside. Oh, it hurts and it burns, but it's a little bit true. Yeah, okay. So he was interviewing uh, Timothy B. Schmidt. 
And I'm just going through the pedigree, or the, not the pedigree, the curriculum vitae of this particular musician. Um, he was on Toto's album, and uh, let's see. Let's see, Richard Marx's, he plays on I Don't Mean Nothing as a bassist. Dirty Laundry, oh my god, I didn't know he was background up on Dirty Laundry. I love Dirty Laundry. It's a, it's one of my little, I feel guilty, but I love that song. Um, he worked with Jimmy Buffett. He was on tour with Jimmy Buffett. But I want to get Dan Fogelberg, Windows and Walls. I love that album by Dan Fogelberg. Uh, but he, I Won't Hold You Back in Africa. He's the bassist on the song uh, Africa and I Won't Hold You Back. <laughs> Arguably, probably two of the biggest hits of Toto uh, from their whole catalog, right? He's the bassist who played on those. So, And the thing I like about a bassist, and I was very close to a bassist for several years, is that they like to perform, but they don't need to be the lead. They support. They offer rhythm. They offer the background, you know. And um, I've been to some blues jams where we didn't have a drummer for the night. It was really bad weather outside. There was only five or six of us. And so we had a bassist and we had a lead guitarist and a vocalist. And that was about it. So I was sitting there with my coffee cup going bump, 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 bump as a metronome bump. I was default drummer, you know, trying to, because my bassist couldn't keep track of the, the beat. And, the, you know, when you're on a fly improv in a song that maybe is from a catalog from the 80s and you're at a blues jam, maybe keeping the beat if you ain't got a metronome, you know. So anyway, that being the case, so let's get back to this thing. Um, I, I wandered off into that because it was fun. I had a good time doing that. There was a lot of good times at those blues jams. I was in a relationship with someone for a couple of years and uh, I still don't trust guitarists. Yeah, he was he was one reason why. Although we had some great times, let me tell you. <laughs> and my sister is friends with him on Facebook, but we ain't friends on Facebook because she puts more time into that relationship with the right wing guy who liked guns. To okay, okay, I'm okay. I'm letting it go. He was a veteran, and uh, I learned a lot. He was contrast. I learned a lot from that relationship, and I can move on. Let's talk about something else. Anyway, I like hearing from this bassist. Uh, the person I was seeing in that relationship, he was not a bassist, but the bassist I've known of the guitarists, I like it because they don't need to be lead. You know, they 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 like where they're at, and those that's what they want to do. Um, and sometimes you might default to that because there's enough lead guitarists. There's always going to be plenty of uh, lead guitarists, white male lead guitarists. There's going to be plenty of those that they'll be fending for themselves. But the, the, the backup, you know, doing the bass play, not so much, you know. Che check out his interview with uh, John Fugelsang this week, Timothy B. Schmidt, if you want to get a... Uh, this guy is like... He started listing off all the songs he'd been on. I was like going, uh, Clint Black. Okay, Clint Black, the Beach Boys. I mean, he's... <laughs> You're just sitting there going, how could you have played for all those people and still be alive? He's the guy with the long hair and the eagles, you know, sings that nice sappy song. I don't, uh, I don't, I can't tell you why. So the reason I bring him up is that it was amazing to listen to this guy who is a backbone to a lot of music that I grew up listening to and that I had a lot of emotions about, you know. It also reminded me of the nature of an artist because was it Dave Crosby we lost in the last month? And there's a lot of people who really admired Dave Crosby. Wasn't he Melissa Etheridge's children's parents biologically? I think he was the donor for her children. And that guy did a lot of drugs and smoked a lot of weed. And I was just thinking about that in regards to the creative process because Timothy B. Schmidt, the basis for a lot of people, uh, he... Uh, he witnessed a lot of things and did a lot of things, you know, as a musician. The creative process is not something that's uh, very regimented. I think it's you can invite it if you consistently 
perform and practice, right? I was just thinking about how much I appreciate that that bassist. Okay, here we go. Okay, I'm wandering a bit. So the creative process, I was getting kind of critical. Yeah, that's the word. I was feeling critical of myself because uh, I was having a hard time pulling together an episode for this week. And then because I was geeking out and smoking weed and just watching art documentaries, because I can do that sometimes. <laughs> when I've had a hard week where I was busting my ass and, you know, I spent half, if I spent half of it find, trying to find work and not finding it, or I got work, but then it was like seven hours straight and I couldn't stop or stop for food because it was just hammer, hammer, hammer. When I finally sit there and go, oh, I'm going to get this deposit on this date. I get this thing where I do feast or famine. I don't know if you do this where you like work your ass off till you're going to apparently fall over. And then you're like, okay, now I can take two or three days and do absolutely nothing. Do you know how easy it is to do what is perceived to be absolutely nothing? You know, just hanging out, smoking weed, drinking some coffee, just listening to music, watching YouTube videos and art documentaries on Monet and Renoir. That's what I've been doing. I'm very happy and content, and my goal is to get a life where I don't have to work anymore, and I can just have my bases covered, and I can do service work and volunteer work now and again, and I can have long periods of silence or just listening to Renoir documentaries while you smoke some weed and do don't have to earn any income or clean. That's that's my fantasy. Okay, anyway, back to it. So let's get to this. Um. So I'm going to be gentle with myself because I'm getting this podcast recorded. It's just taken me a while to get there. And also I was starting to record and then a big batch dropped and I had to work on that for a couple hours because I've been waiting for days. And it was like crickets for days. And then, of course, I'm like, okay, I'm going to focus on this project. And then, hey, here's some money. So I had to run for that. Now I'm back. Okay, here we are. But we're focused. We're here. We're present. What are we going to talk about? Well, the artistic process. But um, I'll see if I can tie, tie this thread together. There's a BBC show made by the makers of uh, Antiques Roadshow UK, and Fiona Bruce is the main commentator on that. She was uh, one of the pioneering women on the BBC as a commentator, and she's been in several projects. Uh, she's done several projects. I really enjoy this Faker Fortune one because you're really drilling down on one picture but you're doing, you're looking at every piece of the pie. You know, you're looking at how things get um, authenticated, uh, where there's warring fractions and institutes that are competitive and get in the way. And it's just, it's like watching, I don't know, some Rosemary and Thyme, that BBC series. It's like actually something really delightful that kind of takes its time to unwind. You know what I mean? And you don't know till the end and they build it up and then you're like, is it real or is it a fake? You know? So I just spent, uh, oh, an hour watching this documentary about a Renoir piece. Now, Ren Renoir and Monet birthed Impressionism. They're the people that, if you look at their work, there's several pieces of work that, where they would paint together. They would go in, in France and, and just sit there on a, on a river or a bridge and just watch people, watch sailboats, and then paint. If you look at some of the gardens of Renoir or Monet and their properties, you can see a lot of their artwork. And I was looking at a piece recently from an artist with a friend of mine, with an image that rather kind of evoked this kind of shimmering, melting kind of image that an Impressionist work is going to give you. But there was a lot of red. And I remember thinking, oh, well, Monet was not known for red. And then I started seeing more of his catalog. And guess what? He, he uses red now and again. Let's see if we can wind this down. There's a conclusion I'm going to get to at the end there, but we're going to weave through some complex little places first. So the first is, if you've got a Renoir or a Monet, 
you've got to get it approved by an entity that says you're authentic and there's got to be provenance. So where it comes from and they want to be able to tra track it from the artist all the way to you, if they can get it that way. Art curators, people that sell art, some of them might be known for forging or selling forgery. So you have to, there's this whole pedigree. And sometimes what happens a lot of times is you'll have one, uh, one curator that's selling both authentic pieces and fake pieces. So that kind of will invalidate a bunch of real paintings that were used uh, to season the pot, so as it were, you know, to put in a bunch of fake stuff and then season it with enough real stuff that you think is authentic, right? So I just watched this long, perilous journey of this uh, very, it's an entitled house with wealthy family, and this woman can just paint for her living. And it, I was just soaking up the environment the old history of the artwork, the fabric and the curtains and the huge pieces of furniture and, and how these people live. You know, it's, you can smell it, you can feel it, there's a vibe to it. And then you forget things like, gee, everybody I've seen in this uh, series is very slender. They're all wearing uh, tailored clothing or very tailored suits that are um, kind of demure, but obviously fitted to their body. These are custom pieces, you know, and they're kind of looking like a backdrop to their face. You know, it's kind of interesting to watch these people in these art worlds that some of them dress a particular way, some of them do not care. The ones that are um, entitled and have millions, a lot of times they don't give a shit what they look like. I mean, some of them don't. Some of them are just like, you know, I can look however I want to because I'm a billionaire, you know what I mean? <laughs> And also, you could be a, a modest living person like myself and not care what you look like, which I kind of I lean towards that myself, I think. So you watch this whole process of this titled wealthy family who had all these things that were documented and insured. Then it went to be curated or put into a museum. And the museum said, we'll take these five or six pieces from your family's estate, but we can't take these as authentic. And they're not signed. We don't have provenance on them, so no. It gets rejected. And so this piece of work that had been known as a, authentic for 50 years is no longer seen as authentic. And they, she can't sell it. This owner can't sell it. So then they're trying to figure it out. And then it breaks down into the situation where you're dealing with people like the Wildenstein Institute. The Wildenstein Institute is over in France, Paris, and they have what they call the, the Catalogue Raisonnée. The catalogue raisonné. Um, that's the receipts. I believe I'm saying that correctly. That's the authentic, perceived, and acknowledged official list of all the Monet. That's they the people that put out a, cura a curated list that says that's authentic. That's not. We can prove provenance on that. We can on that. Yeah. You know, here's the Christie's receipt. Here's a Christie's auction number, etc. So then. They're going down this line and they're doing all this molecular work. They have this multi-million dollar piece of equipment that's designed as highly technical and from this institute that's like a million billion dollar institute that analyzes so many things. But they're analyzing this piece of work that's supposed to be a Renoir and Renoir and Monet, they work together. They were, you know, you'll see overlap with their work. Oh, in this, in this particular fake or fortune, they actually go to their estates and you get to see, you're sitting there watching them. There's a lily pad. You're like, Monet, there's a lily pad. It's right there. That's on his house. That's where his house is. Oh my God. It's a real thing. Anyway. So, um, and it's on his estate. You're like, that's fantastic. So you get to see this in this BBC series, right? So they're going everywhere. They're all over the world. But when they're looking at this piece of work and it goes all the way up the pedigree and I'm going to spoil it. So don't, if you want to know the, you don't want to know the conclusion, then you might want to stop listening now. Cause I'm going to say what the spoiler is on this episode that was published five years ago. Okay, here we go. So 
what you do is, um, turns out that this Wildenstein Institute refuses to acknowledge it as authentic. Okay. But we have some intrigue because the Wildenstein Institute has recently gone up on tax fraud charges. It turns out that Daniel Wildenstein curated a lot of his stuff, 40s and 50s, etc. And then Guy Wildenstein, the son of Daniel Wildenstein, who is the art dealer, Guy Wildenstein uh, inherits this and he's getting fussy about things. Okay, so it turns out there's something saying yay and nay to that they're taking out of the catalog. Uh, so get this. So there's this rivalry between this institute and these other institutes because everybody else is saying this is a Renoir. This is Renoir. This is authentic, right? But the Wildensteins don't. So if you want to know what people think about it, go on Google and then type in the Wildenstein Institute. Wild E-N Stein. Wildenstein. That's, you know, Guy Wildenstein, Daniel Wildenstein, art curator. Um, you know, you'll know. Anyway, and so um, his family... That family fled to France after the German occupation during World War II. Where were they originally? They were racehorse owners and breeders in France. Anyway, fascinating, but they have a lot of ego and pride and stuff like that. And uh, can you believe someone in Paris? I mean, I, I've studied Fr French for a couple of years, and it's um, it's fascinating to interact with a Frenchman. Uh, if you want to, I, I've had a couple arguments with Frenchmen, and, and boy, they can really they can pack a punch. They're very passionate when they're. I'm also making gross generalizations about a culture, but that was my experience. So, um, and that was my experience. But back to it. So it turns out this beautiful piece that has been acknowledged as a Renoir for a long time. They did all this X-ray stuff. They pulled it up. It's like the same stretcher, and it's got the same. It's got the provenance with the stamp on it. And the stamp on this particular stretch canvas was only produced between 1870 and 1879. And he was known to produce this in 1974. And there's a particular piece of paint that he colored with a shade that he stopped using in the 19, you know, 1870. You know, it's like they, they pinpointed it. It's like there's no other conclusion that a reasonable person would make, but this is a Renoir. The Wildenstein Institute is refusing to acknowledge this piece. So there's a lawsuit involved. There's all this intrigue and stuff. And then get what? Guess this. This Wildenstein, these Wildenstein folks, Daniel, the, the papa, he ends up, he opens up a trust fund in the Bahamas. It's worth a billion dollars, several thousand pieces of art he's curated and is stuffing over there. Can you believe that? So then Paris, France is going after him for tax evasion and they reach the settlement. And you know what? They ain't necessarily talking about the numbers, but I tell you what. These tax fraud people that are absconding with everything to a place where they got a tax shelter over in the Bahamas, if that don't seem skanky as fuck, okay, maybe that's, I can say that better. That obvious, why would you need to go to a foreign country and hide thousands of pieces of art? You know, and it doesn't matter if it's Switzerland or the Bahamas, it's obvious it's a tax shelter, you evading something. And apparently the IRS were on their ass. So, so, okay, I'm rounding this out here. So this starts out with this art it's beautiful and recognized that is curated and kind of put in this glass case, kind of like my grand, one of my grandmothers you do. Um, these cold little pieces of, you know, objects that she would collect and curate. These people enjoyed painting before, you know, photography was popular and they became famous as impressionists and they created this movement. And, you know, there's a lot of mediocre Renoir and Monet's out there if there's studies or what have you, if there's studies before the final picture is painted they might have just been sketches right so in conclusion <laughs> this beautiful piece of art from this particular piece of art artist if it had been curated and said if it's recognized she can sell it for two to three two to three hundred thousand dollars 
but because this one particular institute won't recognize it, they can't, they can't publish it, right? So, so this beautiful piece of art that she wants to sell to maintain this property that's been in her lineage, she can't do it. And it's, and they took, they took the credibility from it. And it seems like it's mostly territorial. And they went and sat, and actually they, they got into, and they got to look at the original notes and the indexes that you rarely get access to, these highly sensitive data, the original documents from these, these artists and their curators and the, the people that manage them, their managers. There's all this argument and the people want all this money for this really rare piece of artwork. And the thing I guess I go back to is in the 15th, 16th century, um, I think as early as the 11th century in South Africa, there were countries that were trading in beads that were valuable and seen as jewelry to several different cultures. Uh, there were some African cultures in the 11th and 12th centuries are referred to as trade beads. Many will talk about trade beads. And um, they brought this over to the United States. And if you've done any study with indigenous or Native American tribe and tradition, bead work is important. Okay, bead work is important. And um, this was introduced 15th, 16th century. Uh, coming from overseas. So these beads were seen as highly valuable to these countries that couldn't produce this type of thing. And then they started producing art with it. And some of the best artwork we have from indigenous country or uh, cultures in the United States are beadwork, you know, ribbon work, you know, rugs or blankets or, you know, all kinds of things. Um, so back to the beadwork, it's only been a couple hundred years that we were since we've been trading in beads you know what i mean and contextually there's pretty objects that are rare that we're authenticating that come from particular artists who are a particular gender a particular race a particular socioeconomic demographic that are fascinating stories yet under it all there's a sense of love and compassion and empathy and how important is this shit anyway you know what i mean <laughs> So I was just thinking about that this week of going, this is fascinating. And there's so much uh, provenance and intellect and study. And it's fascinating to learn these stories behind these artists and the artists like Monet and Renoir or artists like Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles. You know, um, they tend to live, uh, you know, particular types of lives. You know, and, and I, I'm fascinated to learn more about them and to learn all about a lot of technological things like types of uh, curated uh, paint and when paint was produced and what specific types of cobalt paint that Monet or Renoir were using, etc. So check out Thicker Fortune. Uh, there's a Renoir piece and uh, they, they can't get it authenticated because of this Wildenstein group and these people are cheats and they actually just came together with a huge multi-million dollar settlement with the irs in france um i think that they negotiated with them probably because they could get hundreds of millions of dollars potentially <laughs> <clears throat> but it's kind of it's just like one crooked situation kind of sitting there going well we recognize that in so many people have sacrificed for your you know artifice but uh you give us a couple million and we'll call it good you know what i mean so anyway uh, so this uh, Wildenstein Institute is highly speculative. There's some highly uh, not speculative. Uh, there's some dubious issue. So uh, yet they're, they're powerful enough to, to break everything and to make this one piece of art not seen as recognized. Yet at the same time, does it matter? Do we enjoy the art? Does it cause you to feel joy? 
Does counting how much money it's worth make you feel joy? I don't know. Yeah. Just a couple hundred years ago, we was trading bays, and that was expensive. Remember that? I was actually starting to do a, a deep dive into currency, but I figured this was enough. Um, I don't know if there's anything to reflect on, take away from that, other than uh, there's a lot to learn. And it's fascinating to kind of track a piece and go, everybody and their dog and the tens of thousands of dollars that they spent to authenticate that piece and still these corrupt people that spend hundreds of billions, millions, they have, they estimated that the stuff in the Bahamas was over a billion dollars, over a billion dollars of art that he scurried away with and uh, dubiously hid. So uh, to avoid taxation. So anyway, <clears throat> on that note, um, good luck preparing your taxes and paying taxes is a good thing. Following the law is a good thing too. So uh, I heavily encourage that. And um also appreciate art. That's one thing I've been doing this last week. Uh, trying to be patient with the fact that sometimes I overwork and I underwork. And sometimes managing that can take a little time. And sometimes you just, to avoid burnout, have to take two or three days where you do no, do nothing. Or you meditate and pray and make a loaf of bread and order some groceries and that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try to engineer every piece of grocery I can into being mailed to me for free. And so far, so good. Uh, I've got another order to place as soon as I get to deposit this week. And I hope your groceries are coming into every flavor you want. And I hope you can buy whatever brand you want, too. So thanks for coming to the house on Valencia Street, where we respect art and spirit and the nature of weaving through things and how sometimes compromises are negotiated and everybody's just fine with it. Sometimes I'm not. And we get to talk about it, yeah. So just please understand that you are not alone. And you're never going to be alone. Not here at the house on Valencia Street. Sometimes it's um, whether you like.